Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. You might have heard of FTX from their partnerships with Tom Brady, Steph Curry, or the recent Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. You can also use the FTX app to buy your favorite NFTs with no gas fees, supporting both Ethereum and Solana blockchains. Download the FTX app today in minutes by going to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you guys are all doing well. Today, we've got two very special guests on the show for you. Two people I've really been looking forward to get to sit down and speak with. And of all days to talk, today's a, a pretty interesting day. So I uh, want to thank and, and welcome Matt and Josh from Genesis for coming on the show. Uh, I guess we can first start with Matt, if you want to kind of just give a high level of your background, how you got into crypto and what do you do at Genesis? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for for having us on, Will. It's been uh, it's 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 going to be great. I mean, we've been looking forward to it uh, for a long time as well. Um, so yeah, so my background on that, I run um, Genesis's. Uh, I'm co-head of our lending and trading business. Have been with the firm for about five years, um, and uh, you know, really started back in 2017 in the early days. So we're, I, I think I was the ninth employee. We're about 225 people now. Um, so I've obviously seen a ton of growth, not only in, in the market, but also, you know, at, at Genesis, um, you know, we've really kind of grown our business, um, you know, in, in an order of magnitude since I first joined. Um, so my, my responsibility really has been focused on kind of growing our lending business over the last few years. Um, you know, we're now one of the largest institutional lenders in the market. So we're facing off against, you know, some of the most well-known crypto native hedge funds, um, traditional hedge, hedge funds. A lot of the prop trading firms out in Chicago that people know of, like Jane Street and Jump and DRW, we're facing a bunch of the kind of other dealers in crypto that need to kind of work their balance sheet. Um, and our loan portfolio today is about 15 billion. So it's, it's a pretty substantial business for us. Um, and, uh, you know, and then more, more recently, I've kind of shifted gears a little bit to kind of just focus more holistically on how Genesis, um, you know, can deploy its balance sheet in the optimal way. So looking at kind of new strategic opportunities for us as a business. Um, so prior, prior to Genesis, I was at, uh, Bridgewater Associates, um, which is obviously a pretty, um, you know, pretty iconic global macro hedge fund run by Ray Dalio. I was there for about three and a half years, mostly focused on like the portfolio construction and kind of market research side. Um, but that's really where I got in uh, here. Um, and, uh, actually it's funny because one of the guys that worked with me at Bridgewater actually wound up leaving a year before I did to go help spearhead, uh, Grayscale Asset Management, which is one of the largest asset managers in crypto and the sponsor of the Bitcoin Investment Trust. Um, so, you know, he and I started talking for about a year and then I ultimately took the leap of faith and, uh, you know, wanted to kind of come create, you know, traditional capital markets in an emerging asset class that really didn't have anything. So, you know, that's how I got here. Um, and, you know, prior to that, I got some kind of just traditional capital markets reps at Fidelity, which is where I started my career in Boston. Hey, Will, uh, this is Josh. Uh, very happy to be here with you, with you uh, on this podcast. Um, I work with Matt at, the, at Genesis. I work on the derivatives trading desk uh, here. And uh, our business is focused on sort of importing a lot of the instruments and um, types of trading formats of uh touching crypto in a lot of different ways that you could find in traditional markets. So, um, you know, things like options, things like forwards that you, you'd want to, you know, use to hedge your book or express a certain view. Um, we're trying to offer those products to institutional investors that are getting into crypto for the first time. Um, the business itself is pretty new. It's about two years old. That's when I joined the company. Um, prior to Genesis, I kind of had a little bit of a, a winding road through different firms in, in tried find crypto. Um, I started my, my career at Goldman um, in equity derivatives. And um, it's kind of funny, like when I, when I started, it was sort of, um, we were uh, just coming out of the financial crisis. So that's 2009. 
Um, and, you know, obviously it was a pretty strong year for um, just a couple of years, actually, for the banking sector um, as everything rebounded. But there was always sort of, you know, this sort of lingering uh, mistrust of, of the sector, um, you know, at least among the mainstream kind of uh, population. And uh, I think that was kind of, for a lot of people, the impetus to like look at other uh, things that were going on in fintech at the time. A lot of my colleagues were leaving. Um, I had actually a good friend at Goldman that started uh, this exchange called LedgerX, which I think we all know uh, now as having recently been bought by uh, FTX. But um, that's kind of how I got into crypto. He introduced me to the founder of a company called Circle, which back then was more a consumer uh, trading sort of and, and payments app. Um, and I was sort of running the treasury business for, for Circle and, and connecting the pipes to exchanges and to uh, large sources of Bitcoin at the time uh, for our retail customers to buy. Um, and that was a big change for me. I, I had previously really only traded equities and really only traded uh, derivatives. But um, that's how I kind of got into the uh, trading aspects of crypto um, and the institutional aspects as well, sort of dealing with large um, counterparties, you know, large asset managers, corporates, miners, um, kind of everyone in the early days. And this is kind of even before ETH was really a thing back then. Um, so I, I did that for a while. Um, and, and, you know, kind of every subsequent step I've had in crypto has sort of been more getting back into an institutional trading seat. So, you know, as the markets shifted from 90% retail to 10% uh, and 10% institutional to the other way around, you know, it's maybe like, you know, more 60, 70% institutional nowadays. Um, the nature of, you know, the trading seats have also changed for me over time. I, I worked at, at Galaxy for a little bit, um, helping them to build out their spot and, and you know, derivatives business kind of in the early days. And then two years ago, like I said, I came here. Um, and since then, you know, the, the market sort of exploded for derivatives in general, but also sorts of more sophisticated instruments for people who want to access the asset class. So that's really what we're focused on here is sort of building um, a, a very, uh, you know, white glove sort of service for institutional investors that uh, need, need that, you know, sort of uh, help to get into the, the space. Now that's, that's super interesting. And I definitely want to kind of dive into the quote unquote institutionalization of the market in a moment. Um, but first, I want to start with just to kind of paint the picture for listeners. Can we just talk through the different branches of the overall Genesis business? You've got a lot of stuff going on, right? You've got lending, OTC desk, uh, derivatives, kind of, you know, if you could walk us through each different from a high level uh, branch of the business and how do they kind of tie in together? Yeah, definitely. I, I can start and then I'll, I'll let kind of Josh can dive into his business a little bit. But so for those that don't know, kind of just stepping back, Genesis has been in the market really since 2013. So our, our parent company is called Digital Currency Group. They're one of the largest investing companies in the space, and they're led by a guy named Barry Silbert, who's obviously a pretty well-known kind of early evangelist in Bitcoin um, and, and one of the kind of first early adopters. And, um, you know, Genesis kind of got its start really actually trading non-crypto. Uh, we, were, we were, you know, trading like Facebook private stock, auction rate securities, and other kind of illiquid instruments until Barry ultimately said, you know, I'll actually, I want to go all into crypto and start trading Bitcoin. This was, I think, in like, you know, 2013, 2014. So he wound up selling the other business to NASDAQ private markets and starting Digital Currency Group. And Genesis really spawned from that as kind of the first uh, really like institutional licensed SEC regulated broker dealer that made markets in size in Bitcoin. Um, so that's that's kind of how we got our start. And then obviously we've evolved a ton since then. So the different components now, right, we have our spot trading business, which you know, literally trades probably, I don't know, Josh, maybe 50 or so different uh, crypto assets now. Obviously, a lot of that flow is is going to be in Bitcoin, ETH, um, and some of the other kind of major L1s. But uh, for a long time, it was really just predominantly Bitcoin. And, um, you know, that business is probably doing anywhere from 15 to 20 billion or so in kind of notional volume per quarter. And then the next business that spawned after that is our lending and financing desk. So you could think of this very similarly to like, sec lending or you know repo trading at like a bank or a prime broker and you know we, we're basically providing balance sheet to hedge funds uh you know other trading counterparties principal traders uh dealers uh high net worths that basically need capital to either go long through our desk on leverage so like kind of like margin trading or go short through our desk on margin 
or just that need working capital to trade across a variety of different venues externally where we can manage that risk. So, you know, that that business we started in March of 2018 and it's ballooned a ton since then. Um, it took us maybe a year to reach 100 million in loans outstanding, and then another year to reach a billion and then like four months to reach a loan. Uh, and it was pretty incredible to watch. And, you know, we're facing maybe uh, there's probably about 200 or so kind of unique institutions that borrow from us. And, um, you know, we've done over, honestly, uh, probably 100 billion in, in kind of loan origination since we incepted. So that's the second part of the business. Um, then there's derivatives, which Josh will touch on in a second, uh, which we launched about two years ago. And then lastly, there's kind of custody, which is like really the bedrock of any prime broker, which is what Genesis is really trying to be. And that's just kind of the safeguarding of, of assets, which has kind of almost become like table stakes to the market at this point, right? Like if you're going to have people trade through you as a one-stop shop venue, you need to have a place to kind of hold those keys and hold the assets and then allow them to do different things with those assets, whether it's trading, borrowing, or lending. Um, and so we kind of package all of that up and say, you know, here are all the different business lines and things you can do. And we want to basically give you a single point of access to do that in the most capital efficient and kind of opportunistic way facing a really well-regulated licensed entity in Genesis. So that's kind of like our business holistically. And then, you know, I didn't touch too much on derivatives. So I'll let kind of Josh dive into uh, that a little bit as well. Yeah. Before we toss it over to Josh, I do have like two questions on the, the lending branch of the business. The first one is like, I, I was going through this report and uh, kind of what you were just talking about, the explosive growth in this chart of, of the lending. Um, can, can you kind of describe for us? Um, well, I mean, you, you kind of talked about like who would be, you know, borrowing and lending and, and some of those entities and like what their incentives are around doing that. Um, but have you been surprised over the last quarter to see such an explosive growth in landing, uh, despite kind of you know the market slowing down? Yeah, it's a good question, and and I think like you, you so let me break down kind of the use cases of like why people borrow and like what they're doing, and then why I think we've still seen some significant growth despite like a pullback really in in everything in in price in spreads in interest rates uh, or at least in, in crypto rates. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's really like three reasons why people borrow from Genesis. One is to really just trade on margin through, through our platform, right? So they're, they're borrowing dollars to, to lever up, right? They might want to put on hundred million dollars Bitcoin. Um, and you know, maybe they'll park half of that as kind of margin with us. And they're borrowing $50 million to get, to get long exposure. And then we're managing that kind of as a margin trade. Similarly, but inversely, they can also want to go short and maybe it's, they're going short, you know, ETH versus Bitcoin. And so they actually get a borrow from us in ETH. We lend them the ETH, they sell it back to us for Bitcoin, and we hold the Bitcoin as collateral to back that ETH loan, which acts similarly as a margin loan. So that's that's kind of use case number one. It's a pretty big part of what we do. Um, obviously, you know, you can look at other exchanges like FTX and Binance, and there's, ton, there's a ton of margin trading, you know, happening on those exchanges as well. Ours just happens to be done in kind of as institutional or OTC format. The other use case is like financing. Um, you know, big market makers. So like Susquehanna, Jump, Jane Street, DRW, that obviously like need to go make tight spreads on a variety of different exchanges and they need working capital and balance sheet to go do that. So what do they do? Like they're not going to go long Delta and then like use that Delta to support their positions on exchange. They're going to borrow capital from a, basically like a wholesale lender, like a Genesis um, to go do that. So that's, that's kind of like the second bucket is really like this market neutral um, support uh, that that we provide to large trading firms to go, you know, kind of basically trade on various exchanges, um, and that might mean supporting their client flow. It also might mean trading, you know, principally in capturing spread across derivative and spot markets. And then lastly is like non-trading related financing. Maybe it's like equipment, you know, equipment financing for miners where they need capital to go purchase new, you know, new machines to upgrade their facility. It might mean like shorter term float for different exchanges. So this is basically like non-trading related and it's a smaller part of what we do. So those are like the three buckets. And then I think a lot of the growth has just come from the second bucket, which is really the emergence of like a ton of different institutional kind of trading venues that need balance sheet. And the larger the ecosystem gets, the more of these firms that are just kind of coming into the space and entering that want to kind of trade on a Delta neutral basis. And there's not that many lenders that have balance sheet like Genesis. And so, you know, we're obviously kind of naturally going to be the primary lender to the emergence of many of these different platforms. So even though like there's less leverage in the system and like there's less people using dollars to go long Bitcoin, you can kind of see that expressed in spreads and, 
and basis, which, you can, which we can get into later, there's still just like usage of capital that's increasing really as the adoption curve like continues to go one way, right? Like as this market continues to mature and institutionalize, there's just going to be more folks that need capital to trade on menus. And we're going to be, you know, the ones basically underwriting that risk, providing the capital and kind of growing with the market. And that's really where a lot of the growth has come over the last like year or so. No, that's really interesting. And the other thing I wanted to ask you before tossing it over to Josh is like, how did the dynamics around lending in crypto differ from, I mean, obviously you both have, you know, widespread traditional finance background. So how does lending in, in crypto, given the, you know, kind of 24 seven nature and like extreme volatility differ from lending in traditional finance? Yeah, it's a good question there. And there's like, there's a lot of similarities, but then there's also a lot of differences. So like the similarities I would say are, um, the style of lending right and the structure works pretty similarly and that like you know when we lend dollars for for crypto collateral here it's very similar to a bank lending you know dollars backed by apple stock or tesla stock to a fund that wants to basically lever up his portfolio holdings um and then if we lend coin you know for the for the purpose of shorting it's very similar to a company kind of getting a locate right or a hedge fund getting a locate to go short through their their pb so like the structure and style of what we're doing is like pretty similar to traditional finance. Obviously, like there's a lot of components that are different. So number one, I think is just like that's the overall size of the market, right? Is a lot smaller in crypto. There's just a lot less, um, you know, a lot, a lot less capital to kind of go around. And there's still a lot of demand for leverage. And so you get like a lot of, um, you know, really like mispricing and, uh, our opportunity in our space, right? That's why you kind of see interest rates where they are, right? To borrow dollars in crypto, it's cost you anywhere from like, you know, five to 15% over the last, you know, two years. I think annualized basis traded somewhere in like the low 20s in probably 2020. So like it's, it's been super, um, it's super cash starved market because of just how, uh, how much less balance sheet there is to kind of go around for a community of funds and traders that like have a lot of appetite to go long. So there's just like a mismatch in in really the supply and demand of dollars in our market that's starting to come in. But that's been one huge difference. And then more like operationally and practically, um, you know, there's differences such as just the 24 hour nature of, of crypto. Right. Like we have to manage margin through the weekend, through the night. And so you really have to be global and have an operations risk, market risk, credit risk team set up to do that well. Um, you know, you can't really do that if you're just working New York hours and you have counterparties in Asia. So really, you know, managing that um, obviously is a lot different. Uh, and, and I think it's made the, the market just a lot more competitive uh, to, to have to do that. And then lastly, like you get other nuanced things such as like have to, having to think about staking, right? And how does that like impact the returns on a loan where like, if I, am I entitled to the staking returns? Are you entitled to the staking returns? Um, and things like hard forks and airdrops and how like the ownership rights change over that, depending on is it, you know, who, is it the lender that gets it? Is it the borrower that retains the rights to those things? Um, and then how do you craft that into legal agreements to, to kind of execute that well? So there's a lot of kind of differences there that just have to be kind of thought through and understood. Um, and then you just have to be, you know, spread out globally and, and be willing to kind of operate 24 seven to, to do it well. No, that's fascinating. And, and Josh, I now want to kind of turn it over to you for the derivative side and kind of getting the, the high level on how that operates. Yeah, for sure. So when we say derivatives in crypto, most people associate that with um, finding leverage on things like perpetual swaps or like quarterly futures. Um, and, you know, you, you know, people are probably familiar trading on, on BitMEX or Binance kind of um, in the early days, right? Um, the reason that whole um, industry came about was really like when crypto started initially, it was a fully funded product, right? And what that means is you have to buy, you have to full, you know, send a wire to Coinbase, right? You have to send US dollars to the exchange before you can actually buy any crypto. Um, and that is hard for institutional market participants to do at scale because in most other markets, you usually settle your trades after the fact, or you um, net them off against other things that you're doing in the market. So, um, you know, from, from like a capital efficiency perspective, it obviously made sense for you know, derivatives to really like explode uh, as a way to get exposure to crypto, both for retail market participants as well as for institutional participants. Um, and then the other sort of natural trend in the industry over time has just been, you know, there's a, there's a sort of trend for extracting uh, yield from um, productive yield from assets in crypto. 
Um, and really that just came about because Bitcoin for the longest time really didn't have any productive use, right? It, it's more of a store of value. You hold it. It has some speculative value because you're um, hoping it appreciates over time and other people kind of view it uh, along the same lines as you, you know, with the store of value thesis. Um, but for the most part, you know, for, for the history of Bitcoin uh, up to, let's say, you know, four or five years ago, really when Matt started the lending business here, there wasn't like a, a productive use case for holding it. So um, that's when lending really came about, you know, people started um, deploying Bitcoin and ETH to sort of centralize lending businesses like Genesis to earn some yield. Um, and then over time, that yield obviously compressed, right? And then, and then you, you saw more demand for borrowing, let's say, like dollars and stable coins in crypto. And that was like a new source of yield for people because uh, obviously everyone wants leverage in space. Everyone wants capital efficiency. So, so there was that sort of demand to borrow dollars. Um, and then when that sort of compressed, I think what people started to look for was other ways to use derivatives to extract yield from crypto. Um, and a common trade that comes up a lot is, for instance, you know, buying um, two things that are correlated, let's say um, spot, like you can buy Bitcoin uh, USD on Binance, like the spot uh, asset USDT, and then you can sell uh, the Bitcoin USDT future, right? So those two things in, in theory should trade in tandem, but usually there's going to be some difference in spread between uh, those where those two things are trading. Usually the futures are trading above um, the spot price. And the reason for that is like, like uh, I was mentioning earlier is there's a lot of demand for people to buy assets on leverage. So um, you can extract some yield by doing those, those two trades simultaneously um, without taking market risk. So that's kind of another way of extracting yield out of the crypto market. Um, that started compressing that, that sort of basis trade over time. And then you saw a lot of people start to turn to options and options are a pretty popular way in traditional markets to extract yield by selling volatility. Right. So you you have a view on some asset. You're willing to you know, sell your upside on an asset. You can sell calls uh, on on something that you own, at, you know, with the strike price that matches your price target. So, you know, in the context of something like Tesla, right, you would own Tesla stock. You would sell some call options, let's say, you know, uh, a fifteen hundred dollar strike call option on Tesla. Um, if it trades above there, then you get called out of the position and you no longer own Tesla stock, but you, you sort of participate up to that upside and then you get some yield by selling that call option in the form of premium that you're paid up front. So the same idea obviously applies in crypto. You can do the same thing on Bitcoin. You can do that on ETH. Um, there's, you know, the most liquid exchange out there is called Deribit. Um, they do something like 90, 95% of global volume in crypto options. Um, there's a lot of alternatives to that. There's, there's um, LedgerX, there's uh, OKX has options. Um, there's, you know, even now there's um, a lot of innovation in the on-chain derivative space. So you can, you can participate in on-chain vaults like Ribbon and Friction and Katana. Um, and these are all sort of new methods for people to sell options. It's all effectively the same type of trade. And um, that's really, you know, what we do on our desk is we sort of, take these more complicated instruments that have, um, you know, non-linearity in them. And we, uh, you know, we sort of bridge like supply and demand imbalances across all these different venues. And sometimes it's an access problem, right? Some people um, need to face a counterparty that looks like Genesis because like Matt was saying, you know, we're set up in the right way. We have, um, you know, the right kind of regulatory structure. We have a very substantial team of operations uh, and legal and compliance people and traders and risk takers that can sort of um, absorb risk and price things efficiently for you. Um, and we're, we're kind of using that uh, as and packaging that all as a product for institutional guys that want to buy and sell um, options on crypto. So I've really at this point only talked about the supply side of, of selling options. Those are people looking for yield um, on the buy on the demand side. You know, it's really coming generally from folks that have, um, directional views that they want to express tactically, right? So you, um, you think the merge is on ETH is going to be a big up, upside catalyst for ETH. You might want to express that by buying call options, right? So on the downside, like you, you have a day like today um, where the market gets smashed really more, more because of just global macro concerns. But, um, you know, you, you don't take any pain on the downside. You've already um, protected yourself by, by paying a premium for a call option where you don't participate on the downside, but you do participate on the upside. So um, that sort of asymmetry, that sort of nonlinear payout is something that, um, you know, a lot of hedge funds will use. Um, 
you can also buy put options, right? It's the opposite direction where you're looking for protection on the downside. That's something like we, we might trade with, let's say, a venture firm that has um, a big portfolio of tokens of locked assets, right? So they have exposure to crypto that um, would normally be hard to, to trade out of because it's illiquid. Um, and they might use options with our trading desk to protect uh, them from adverse moves in the entire asset class. Hey Josh, like one of the obvious kind of like high level takeaways that I think myself and listeners will come away from everything you just said was the fact that, you know, the market over time is, is obviously more institutions are coming in. It's, it's getting a bit more complex, right? And, and, and with that, um, should, should we be expecting the market to become more efficient? I mean, I think you, you're, we talked briefly about Matt mentioned, you know, spreads, spreads tightening, uh, you know, the three month basis coming down from like 45% annualized at the beginning of 2021. Obviously, like Grayscale was trading at a massive premium and, and the GBTC trade was was huge. I'm sure you guys played a, a large role in, in manufacturing some of those trades. But um, what do you what do you think about over time? Like, should we be expecting the market to just get more efficient as these entities come in and, and look to take on these these you know, more sophisticated type of, of trades? Yeah, I think I think the efficiency of the market is like this. Um, sort of like army that's kind of marching across the field, right? And there's like different areas that are um, closer, right? And more easily accessible to people. And those get sort of um, armed out first. And so there's, you know, things like the basis trade where all you really need is to have capital, right? You just, you just take dollars, you buy spot and you sell futures. Um, you, there's now, um, we've seen just a flood of capital come into space from institutional uh, market participants that do have the balance sheet to really take advantage of those uh, opportunities. And, you know, it's really, there's a risk element of it. Like you have to kind of weigh like the risk of taking exposure to a crypto exchange, for instance, or taking exposure to a counterparty like Genesis that operates in crypto. Um, but as more and more people get more comfortable, obviously, um, the risk premium that uh, comes out of that trade is going to compress. So that is um, something we see that that's becoming much more efficient. Before that, even there was sort of the trade of just pure spot, you know, exchange arbitrage, right? You buy on Coinbase, you sell on Bitstamp. Um, that was like a hugely profitable trade for a lot of systematic trading firms um, back in, you know, 2014 through 2017. Uh, SBF's got that famous story about Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the yen trade or the Korea trade, the kimchi trade. Um, the kimchi premium. The kimchi premium, yeah. Um, that's, that's been our bad already. That's, that's even simpler than the basis trade. We're just taking two like for like markets and, and sort of collapsing them. Um, and then, you know, what we're seeing now over time is the, the frontier is really on, on kind of on-chain activities, right? Yeah. DeFi, um, you can kind of see like the shift in how people are extracting value from the market is really less about bid offer and more about kind of more sophisticated financial engineering, um, you know, sort of engineering um, exit liquidity in some way, or, um, you know, sort of, you know, pr converting sort of time value, uh, and, and, you know, liquidity preference into sort of um, yield, right? So like, you have these lockups on tokens, um, you, you throw them into single sided staking, and in exchange, you get some yield, but you're locking up your tokens for some long period of time. Um, and there's maybe ancillary benefits to that. There's, there's maybe, you know, you get vote, you, you, you're, it's like a vote escrow situation where you, you have some governance rights, but, um, you know, all of it is sort of pricing out and unbundling like different aspects of token governance and putting a price on it. Uh, and that's kind of how people are extracting uh, value in the market now. And that's going to become more efficient over time too. But right now there's a lot of uncertainty of how that's, that stuff is priced. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I echo everything Josh said too. And like, I mean, you could also see this playing out in lifetime. Like we've both been here now, or at least in trading the markets for, you know, three to five years. And I remember when I first joined in 2017, like spreads on spot, right? Like people people would pay a hundred bips on an institutional BTC trade. Like we were clipping 1% in on, on, on Bitcoin. We were probably clipping two, or not, not in, like 1% notional, 2% on ETH trades. So obviously like spot was the first thing to get, you know, to, to get kind of, grounded in, in, in reality and, and kind of get tied closer to like what you see in traditional markets, even though we still have a long way to go. Um, and then lending rates, right? Those, those kind of got squashed in, in, into what Josh was saying. Um, and, then, and then obviously like DeFi now is kind of the, ne is the next thing. We'll kind of see how long it takes basically for like those with capital to get to a, you know, a point of sophistication 
um, where they're comfortable enough basically arving that out as well. But then it's like, you know, who knows what the next frontier might be. So I think like, you know, there's going to be pockets of innovation that continue to spur in crypto that then drive inefficiency and arbitrage. And my guess is that like the speed at which those arb opportunities get crushed is going to just happen faster and faster and faster until the market becomes ultra efficient. So when you think about like a trading business, like it doesn't sound great, but at the same time, the pie gets a lot bigger, right? Like as, as there's more market participants and as there's more, uh, you know, true buy side coming in at some point, right? There's just going to be a bigger pie to kind of go around. Uh, and then every, every big trading firm is going to kind of have their own unique edge in like, you know, really like moat around what they do and, and kind of core value add. Um, but right now I'd say we're kind of somewhere like in the fifth, sixth inning of like that, that efficiency uh, curve. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not quite to the point where, where, you know, where you see traditional markets, but obviously we're nowhere near where we started, you know, back in, in 2016, 2017. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I was listening to a podcast recently with SBF, I think it was on like Bloomberg's podcast. Uh, and he said something that was like really obvious. I just don't know. Why I never thought about it. He was just saying, well, yeah, like spreads may condense, but at the same time you can make up by that, you know, by just using more volume. And so he was saying like, you know, uh, arbitrage funds are actually just as profitable as they were back in the day. Their margins just as, aren't as large because they're just doing more volume to make up for the, for the spreads tightening. So uh, yeah, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so kind of going off of this, like, do you guys think these funds that are just coming in, like maybe, you know, salivating at the, the inefficiencies we still have in this market, although maybe it's, you know, as we just talked about evolving to where it needs to be. Do you think some of this capital spills over into like just directional liquid token investing? Like, you know, obviously you guys are dealing with these, you know, entities on a, on a day in day out basis. So do you see any entities that will come in and just be looking to, you know, arbor up these spreads and then they'll say, Hey, you know what? I actually think there's actually merit to this asset class and then become fundamental investors. Like, do you, do you see that kind of water flow effect or do you think they just stay in their lane of just arbing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you can definitely, see that that effect so like i mean take for example and i've mentioned them a few times right take for example like jump or jane street which really entered the market like maybe three to five you know, probably three or four years ago uh and have obviously ramped up their trading efforts ever since but now it's like you know it, they're not just trading right now there's now there's jump crypto there's jump capital they're making vc investments like far out the curve in crypto jane street just invested in near protocol Right. You have folks like Wintermute and Amber, which also were attracted to the space because of the art opportunities that are now like major investment firms um, that are kind of investing across you know, the infrastructure stack and crypto. So I think like, you know, you, you do, you, you know, you are starting to see that. And, and even like three hours is a good example. Like they, they came in probably to, you know, trade basis and they really ramped that up. And, and then obviously they invested in Deribit uh, and they're one of, you know, one of the larger VC presences in the space. You know, even look at like the Alameda story, right? They came in to basically are the Japan uh, USD trade, and then they wound up creating one of the largest exchanges in crypto and are obviously running a $2 billion venture fund, uh, have created tokens. Uh, and then even on the banking side, um, you know, take, for example, like Silvergate. Uh, they came in obviously because they, they thought spreads would be attractive to be a lender, uh, to, to bank, you know, crypto trading firms and kind of clip you know, clip spread there. And now they're buying like the intellectual property from, you know, Facebook for, you know, for the payments network DM. So I think, you know, you, you're, you're starting to see like all these firms that kind of came in to, to kind of look for like low hanging fruit ways of, of monetizing, um, you know, their businesses. And, you know, at some point, you know, I think a lot of them were, were, were you know, almost fell in love with, with the, the concept of what crypto can be and obviously wanted to kind of level up their participation and actually, you know, take some, take, you know, take a bite and take a bite of equity and put some skin in the game and invest in various things across, you know, across the space. So it's been, I think, you know, you get the evidence is there for, for that, for sure. Uh, that's really insightful. I'm, that's kind of like what I had guessed, but it, it's really interesting to hear that firsthand from you. Uh, I want to get to your guys' like, you know, thoughts on the current state of the market. But first, before I forget, Josh, can you talk to us about this, this news today? I've been seeing this everywhere on Twitter. Luna Foundation Guard acquiring another one and a half billion dollars of BTC. Uh, you kind of facilitated this. So could you kind of walk us through the details of kind of how this went down and, and what this means? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an exciting transaction for us to be involved in as a firm. Um, you know, it's it's not every day that we get, you know, someone calling us on the desk and say, I want to buy a billion dollars of, of anything, really. Um, so, you know, it, it is a testament actually to the asset class too, that we're at the size where we, we start talking about billions with a B. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I think we couldn't have really found a better partner in this than, than kind of the guys at, at Terra and LFG. Um, you know, we, we had a good opportunity to kind of talk to a lot of the folks over there um, across various conferences. And, and, you know, conferences are just a great way to meet them because they, they are kind of scattered around the world. And a lot of them are obviously in Korea. Um, but they, they've built out this enormous ecosystem. Um, there's, you know, huge amount of appetite, I think, from both retail investors and institutional investors to get involved in what is effectively now one of the largest L1s that can support, you know, real robust DeFi activities, payments activities, um, you know, the, the money markets that have been built in Terra are, um, you know, supporting $20 billion of, of assets and, and in, in more really over time. Um, and, you know, people have very uh, different views, obviously, on the asset class and kind of like, you know, the direction of it um, over time. And I think we're sitting there in the middle. We have a lot of uh, counterparties that are active um, buyers and sellers of these assets, Luna, UST, um, and, and now kind of Bitcoin, which has become an integral part of um, the Terra ecosystem as a way of stabilizing uh, their, their uh, UST stablecoin. So um, we're really excited about it. I think it just provides, um, you know, we're, we're a good kind of on-ramp for a lot of institutional guys to get access to that space. So um, we're, we're actively trading it. We're actively lending it and borrowing it from counterparties so they can sort of generate yield through our trading desk. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, a major one for us these days, but we're seeing a lot more ecosystems come up, you know, alongside Terra. Um, it's going to be, you know, definitely a multi-chain world. And for the, for the folks that have a hard time sort of accessing directly on chain, we're, we're a good way to sort of um, get, get, uh, get access and get, and get the sort of yields that you, you see in DeFi, but maybe have a hard time accessing. No, thanks for, thanks for explaining on that and, and congrats on facilitating it, man. That, that's huge. Everybody's been talking about it. So uh, yeah, it's a huge transaction. Uh, I, I want to kind of ask you guys about like what you think about the current state of the market. I mean, we've seen this aggressive sell-off now for several months and equities, uh, BTC and fixed income. Uh, you know, obviously macro has kind of been in the driver's seat. We reached like a record high correlation to the NASDAQ. Uh, yeah. in the NASDAQ, I think in the last two weeks or the last three weeks, but it's, it's been like tremendously high uh, regardless for the last month or two. So what do you guys kind of think about the, the state of the broader markets as well as kind of how that's that's been tying into BTC? Matt, I guess we could start with you. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, so I think like when I when I think about my view on on like Bitcoin or the crypto market generally, like it's it's usually like from a multitude of different lenses, it's it's like easy to get caught up in like the day-to-day price action, like especially on a day like today when everyone like all the sentiment now is like super bearish and you're seeing like risk being taken off, not only in, in crypto, but obviously in equities as well. But like, you know, that's where I think as a as a prudent investor or someone like looking at the space, like you have to kind of have multiple lenses at which you kind of assess these things. So, you know, I think the, the main, I mean, lens number one for me is like what, like over the last five years, what I love about the seat is like we're, we're, we're a nexus for basically everything happening in, in the market, right? We see all the information flow. We see the investment. We see we see the capital flow. We see the emergence of new infrastructure. And so to me, like that, the growth, right, is so obvious. It's been a one-way train. Like it's been burning since the day, you know, I stepped in the door. We're like, that to me is like the long-term trend line of the asset class. And it's like, only going in one direction and it's definitely exponential in nature. And that like, when you think about just like markets generally or like economies generally, you know, that's like that element of like the constantly burning evolution that that is like taking productivity higher. And to me, that's like clearly on a, on a fast track, right? So that that is like super bullish. Then the next, the next lens is like, how do you, like, how do you, can you sense check that with like, you know, is this market or is this asset class like relevant kind of in the world we live in today? Obviously, I think this is a no-brainer, right? You see what's happening, um, you know, in 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 Russia and, and Ukraine in terms of just like, um, you know, obviously we're, we're at war. There are sanctions all over the world. There's almost this like emergence of like deglobalization, where like countries are kind of more siloed. Um, so like having you know having an asset that is borderless, that's internet native, um, you know, just makes a ton of sense, kind of given the backdrop, uh, both overseas and in the U.S. And then. You, you kind of compound and layer on the fact that like we've just experienced 40 year high inflation, um, right? And you can have something that is literally immutable that's programmed uh, to be deflationary. 
um, that's also kind of internet native, just makes a ton of sense when the world is literally moving, you know, more and more digital by the day. Um, so like from a sense check net narrative perspective, it supports the productivity of, of the asset. Then it's like, okay, well, like, why are we selling off then obviously? Um, and, and obviously, you know, people can point to, um, you know, we've had a historic run, uh, back in, in March of 2020, you know, right, really right as COVID hit the expectation was that, right, there's going to be a ton of stimulus in the economy. Um, you know, bar rates are going to go to zero. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of loose credit. And with that, like, I'm, you know, inflation was probably priced in to be pretty high over the next few years. And what's a great asset to basically ride the coattails of that, you know, that's Bitcoin. Now, obviously, we're going the other way. Uh, and, and it's, you know, we, we've seen some of the record breaking inflation prints where, uh, you know, the Fed has to actually do something about this now. And you're starting to see credit markets immediately react to that. If you just look at the, the 10 year or really any, any point on the curve, you know, rates are obviously skyrocketing now, which means equity valuations across the board are going to get destroyed. Um, and so there's going to be a massive risk off in equity markets. And unfortunately, crypto, you know, despite it having other properties is pretty far, you know, on the far end of the risk curve uh, and has been, to your point, super correlated and will likely stay super correlated, uh, you know, to, to equity markets, which everybody knows are going to kind of continue to sell, you know, sell off. You know how much of how much of that is priced in at this point is is anyone's guess probably you know it'll be at least half but there's probably more room you know i think for for equities to go lower and then and then probably crypto with it but then it's like okay and until what point like what's the what's the thing that's going to kind of be, be able to catch the bid and i think like one like the asset class has to kind of decorrelate from from equities and the only way that's really going to happen in my opinion is like this chugging you know is chugging the long adoption curve where you know folks that aren't participating in the market today kind of really start to understand and immerse themselves in the asset class and ultimately decide to take a position because they think it makes sense from a valuation perspective and also just from like a, what's happening in the world does this asset fit the bill um and i don't i don't know quite what level that's going to be at i mean my guess is we, we trade lower um yeah i think the low 30s i could see us going to the high 20s but ultimately i think there's going to be enough adoption and interest from both new participants and then also those that are like long-term holders in the space uh that are going to be willing to buy at those levels from those that have softer weaker hands that kind of you know sell to them so until you see that like transition from like active traders like speculators shorter term holders that basically redistribute that supply into longer term holders that are willing to just buy and kind of take more and more of that share that's ultimately then going to kind of get us there i think in terms of cashing a bit to the upside um but it's obviously going to be a, a pretty choppy year um yeah you, know, you can also look at things like um just like some, some of the data points in terms of like we talked about funding spreads earlier like there's clearly not that much leverage right now in in crypto if you just look at kind of like basis or or, or, or perp funding rates so like i think we're less susceptible to some of those big big wicks down that we've seen in previous you know drawdowns when funding was a you know to your point 40, 40 or 35 percent um right because it's not like you see a bunch of people speculating on the levered long side uh, so I think it's going to be more of like a grind down, like we've seen in the last three months. It's going to kind of level out at some level, and then and then hopefully, right until until we kind of hit that next part of the adoption cycle, uh, and then again, then it's a rinse and repeat. Then you're going to have the speculators lever up on that on that kind of new new part of the cycle, um, and we might reach all time highs at some point. But um, so you know, to 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 synthesize that, I'd say it's you know short term, pretty cautious, you know, relatively bearish, uh, medium term, you know. You know, neutral to bullish and then long term, obviously, super bullish. Yeah, I think Matt laid out a pretty good um, longer term kind of perspective. Um, I'd say um, from from my point of view, like just in a short term basis, like if you look year to date, right, like Bitcoin and ETH, let's say, um, are down something like 20 percent, 20, 24 percent respectively. Um, and then you have other risk parameters like NASDAQ down, you know, let's say 20, 21, 22 percent. And, um, uh, you know, on the kind of far end of the risk spectrum, you have something like RK, like the, the sort of uh, ETF that has a bunch of the sort of growthy tech names down something like 50%, right? So, um, you know, that's surprising to a lot of people, right? Like, like crypto has really outperformed um, what would, you would consider to be like safer basket of risk assets, um, equities. Uh, and I think the reason for that is basically twofold, right? One is Bitcoin has seen a resurgence of this narrative around it being a non-sovereign store of value. And when you have a world where Russia is invading Ukraine and you have, you know, central bank sanctions being imposed, 
um, there's sort of a desire to rotate into assets that are not attached to specific government and are maybe a little bit more censorship resistant. Um, and that, you know, that thesis has always been around for Bitcoin for many years, but um, we're seeing it kind of play uh, a much more central role in a lot of people's um, mindset and, and kind of thesis development. So um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is just around ETH, right? ETH has its own set of catalysts this year, primarily centered around the merge, um, you know, which is kind of, it's been pushed back, but, you know, people kind of thinking like later half of this year, um, it's, it's a huge, you know, fundamental upgrade in the way the protocol works. It's going to become a proof of stake uh, consensus mechanism. And that's been driving a lot of inflows into ETH as well. Um, not just the merge, but also you have, you know, a lot of the layer two tokens uh, launching as well. You, ha you already had Optimism going to make an announcement. Um, and it's, it's bringing a lot of enthusiasm back for ETH as uh, this layer, this distributed computation layer for people. So um, those two things put together have really put a floor on, on crypto prices. And I think what people have kind of forgotten is that, you know, in a situation where macro breaks down um, to the extent that it has so far this year, and it's largely driven by sort of concerns around monetary tightening and things like that, um, you know, everything goes to one, like all the correlations go to one. And um, even if you think you have sort of a differentiated thesis for crypto, you kind of need to wait it out. You need to wait for a point where, um, you, know, rel you know, people's sort of uh, thesis on crypto can, can actually be expressed and can play out in a way um, th that is uh, outside of these sort of forced liquidation moments. Um, so I think what we're looking for is a, uh, a period of stability where um, a lot of things are priced into the market uh, correctly. Um, right now, I think, with, especially today in equities, um, you know, NASDAQ down five, five, six percent. Um, I think what you're seeing is a lot of forced selling, a lot of liquidation in hedge fund portfolios. Um, you know, people are sen sensing blood in the water for a lot of different uh, large firms out there that are holding positions, um, concentrated positions in tech and Chinese ADRs, all kinds of things. And um, that's that's really what's driving what's happening today. You need to kind of get past a lot of that noise in the market before you can sort of really express a view on, on crypto that um, it'll outperform. Sure, now that, that, that's super insightful. And like one of the things that Matt said, I want to get your opinion on Josh, was the fact that he sees a lower likelihood that we have like this final capitulation wick down and we probably see a slow grind down, bottom out, maybe the, the upper 20s, maybe mid 20s. Um, what do you think about kind of the derivatives positioning compared to let's say like a March 2020, right? Where you have like funding pretty jacked up, sentiment pretty high heading into the halving in 2020. Um, you know, also you had BitMEX was still, you know, a, a really, you know, dominant driver of, of volume in the space and their liquidation engine was a little more aggressive. And then one of the other things that, that I've noticed is like uh, the percentage of, of the futures open interest collateralized with crypto versus cash and how we've kind of seen that, that transition over to, you know, uh, from down, like, I think it was like 70% margin with, with crypto to now like 40%. Do you think some of these things and, and maybe anecdotally, obviously can't talk about like individual clients positioning, but you know, anecdotally, do you think we're seeing a much more defensive setup and that the, that would kind of uh, lead you to believe like you know, kind of what, what Matt is saying that the likelihood of some type of final capitulation wick down like a March, 2020 is lower in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of leverage that has already gotten um, taken out of the system. Um, and, you know, it's it's primarily because we've, we're in the range that we've been in for a long time here. Um, we're plumbing the lower ends of that range, but it's already been covered. Like, there's already been a lot of liquidation and the market hasn't exactly been conducive to, you know, retail taking a lot of long punts. So, um, yeah, everyone is sort of exhausted, right, with <laughs> equity markets being the way they are. Um, there's not a ton of speculative capital on leverage anymore. I think Matt is sort of right in the sense that I think the next phase of this market is going to be more long sellers um, that are capitulating. And that tends to be much more orderly. Um, and, you know, in particular, I think there are a lot of holders out there that are highly visible, right? There's, there's a lot of corporate treasuries out there that have published, you know, their average cost basis. There's a lot of, um, you know, Dow treasuries and things like that, just, just large holdings. Um, and, and also 
a lot of public companies now have like, you know, visibility into what, where on their balance sheet they have crypto exposure, whether it's like Coinbase or um, firms that are holding, you know, some of the um, ETF or trust products out there. So um, that's going to be the next pressure point, right? Um, you know, even, you could even mention things like sovereigns, right? Like, like El Salvador, which is obviously a lot of pressure in their uh, sovereign credit spreads recently. Um, you can, you can think that, you know, if there is a highly visible liquidation from somebody in the market that would really put pressure on crypto. Um, and especially as we get to some of those trigger levels where, you know, there's either going to be constituents that are, um, pushing for a liquidation and a reduction of risk. Um, and you know, people are still sitting on gains for the most part. Right. So, um, people are going to want to act to sort of protect those gains, uh, especially if macro conditions get worse. So that, I think that's the next phase. I think that'll be a little bit more orderly than, than sort of these, these massive liquidation wicks. And the other thing about BitMEX in 2020, um, you know, fast forward to now, there's just a lot more venues out there that have, um, if not safer liquidation mechanisms, at least more diverse types of liquidation mechanisms, right? And the diversity means that there's less concentration of, um, risk in any one candle getting liquidated. So I kind of feel like that provides a little bit more stability in the market. Um, and look, honestly, like you look at it now, like if there was a lot more concern about this sort of volatility, um, you would see that express in implied vols and options. Um, even today, we saw just a ton of supply in options on the desk, um, people selling it. And there's just been, that's been a theme all year long, people selling options for yield. Um, there's, there's much less concern about covering the tails, uh, as, as there is just sort of, um, thinking that we'll, we'll trade in this range or, or maybe just grind lower over time. Yeah, no, that, that's super insightful guys. Um, you know, I, I could talk to you for like two or three hours. I got a bunch more questions I could ask. Um, but you know, I do want to be respectful of your time and, and I want to kind of, you know, wrap it up here. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to both of you. This was super insightful. I mean, very rarely do I actually go back and listen to the podcasts, but this is going to be one where I'm going to probably listen back two or three times. So, um, yeah, I want, want to say thank you for, for coming on. And uh, do you guys have any kind of last words or any, anything you want to plug in before we, before we wrap up? Matt, I guess we'll start with you. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having us on. It was really, really great to talk to you. And I'm sure we'll do it again sometime, maybe, maybe in person over a beer. But um, no, last words would just be stay the course, uh, believe it, believe in the thing you're investing in. And, you know, every, everything is cyclical. Um, everything is cyclical in, in both crypto, which is really just kind of like a, a small part of, of kind of global markets, but tends to kind of work in a, in a similar fashion. So uh, just be disciplined um, and, and kind of trust in the cycles. Yeah. And if I can add to that, you know, like all the best stuff in crypto has been built in bear markets. I hesitate to, to use that word. I, I don't think we're really quite there yet, but um, yeah, like all the, all the, all the good things come out, you know, like all, all, if you look at venture portfolios, all their best bets are really made in, in these sort of like rangy or bear market type periods. So um, there's going to be a lot of good things coming out in the next few years. Uh, and we're really excited to be a part of it. Guys, we'll have to have you on maybe in a, in a quarter or two, but uh, yeah, this, this is amazing. And, and thanks again. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Phil. Sounds good. Thanks, Phil.